We're going to begin reading with verse 1. Matthew 17, verse 1. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it's good that we're here. If you wish, I will make three tents here, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. He was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. And when the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Rise and have no fear. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus commanded them, Tell no one the vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. And the disciples asked him, Then why do the, why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? Jesus answered, Elijah does come, and he will restore all things. But I tell you that Elijah has already come. And they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they pleased. So also the Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he was speaking to them of John the Baptist. Let us pray together. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you. We praise you for this reading of your word. We, we do thank you, Lord, for this place where we can meet. We thank you, Lord, for uh, everyone who's gathered here this morning. Uh, even in the midst of this foul weather, uh, Lord, that we have so many out this morning. For that, Lord, we give you thanks. We ask, O oh Lord, that you would bless us as we look to your word. We ask, O oh Lord, that you would bless our hearts and our minds to understanding and perception of your word. And we, uh, we pray these things in Jesus' name. And everyone said, Amen. Amen. If... If God were to take all of us and transport us uh, into his heavens uh, right now, what do you suppose we would see? Uh, does anybody ever think about that? You know, we, we have a tendency to really um, think only about this life and, and uh, this world and uh, the problems that we have in this life, in this world, which you know, some of us right now are going through some really significant uh, issues and it's it's very understanding and very easy to be very consumed with the things of this life and the things of this world. But what would it be like if we just had a glimpse or a foretaste, if you will, of, of heavenly things uh, for a moment? What would that look like? Uh, what would that sound like? Uh, what would that be like? Uh, the Apostle Paul tells us that no eye has seen or ear heard nor the heart of man imagined the things that God has prepared for those who love him. So as we do this, we recognize that uh, the instrumentality of our imaginations is simply unsuitable uh, for the task. But nevertheless, it's a healthy exercise uh, to do. Uh, we might join uh, passages such as the one we've come to this morning with our efforts uh, because there are times when uh, reading the Bible... Uh, we come upon passages of Scripture where God indeed does open the heavens, doesn't He? He opens up the heavens and allows us to see things that we would otherwise uh, never be able to see or perceive 
uh, or even understand. And our text this morning is one uh, such snapshot, if you will, of heavenly things. Uh, it's very brief, as these things often are, uh, but it is indeed a foretaste of, of what's beyond that door. And uh, before I begin with my uh, message this morning, I just want to say a few words about the outline. I, I spend a lot of time on outlines because outlines are so important. If I don't give you a discernible outline, then as you're listening to my message, you're going to be trying to create one. Uh, that's the only way we have for understanding a message. And if I don't give you a discernible outline, you're going to have to do a lot more work than what you should have to do. Uh, so I spend a lot of time on outlines. And while I'm putting outlines together, I'm usually looking for a key theme, uh, maybe a key word uh, in order to construct the outline. And uh, the word that I, that I have in mind this morning, I, I don't want to give you the impression that this word carries the whole freight of the passage. Uh, but this word indeed is very central to the passage, and it's the word glory. You know, when we look to our, our passage this morning, we're certainly going to be struck with the glory of Jesus Christ. In other words, the glory of God's Son. And from there, maybe a little less obvious, uh, but nevertheless, I think once we begin to see it, we see it very plainly. It's the glory of God's Word. Uh, the glory of God's Word. And thirdly, uh, we're going to see the glory of God's plans. Uh, and the title of this message uh, reflects that outline, the glory of God's Son, Word, and plans. Uh, that, that's uh, hopefully helpful to all of us as we try to uh, store these things in our hearts, as we try to, uh, to organize the information that the Lord has given us here. Let's start with the first, uh, the glory of God's Son. Verse 1 tells us that after six days, Jesus took with Him Peter, James, and John, and His brother, and led Him up on a high mountain. Uh, we, we hear about mountaintop experiences sometimes, and I think we all desire these mountaintop experiences. And boy, we're going to get a mountaintop experience here. And it had to have been a special time uh, because Peter, James, and John are singled out. Uh, all the other disciples and followers are left behind. I, I don't know how large the entourage that's, that's following Jesus is at this point. I, I would think it to be quite large at this point. Uh, and... Uh, we might be able to relate to what's going on here if we think about a time in our lives where uh, maybe we were singled out. Uh, we, we were with our parents or with a favorite uncle or with a grandparent and it was just you and him or you and her. Uh, those are special times when we get to enjoy them. And this had to be one such occasion uh, for these three uh, disciples to be with Jesus. Uh, the other gospel writers tell us that they went up on the mountain to pray. Uh, I I think they had to understand that they were in for something special, but I don't think they could have ever imagined uh, exactly what they uh, were going to experience. We're told in verse 2 that when they get up on the mountain, that Jesus is transfigured before them. Uh, I think it can be kind of difficult to get our minds around that word. What does that mean, to be transfigured? Uh, interestingly enough, in the, in the original uh, language upon which Matthew writes in the Greek. The, the Greek word that Matthew uses is the word that we get the English metamorphosis from. Uh, however, the, the English translators usually do not use the word metamorphosis because of some of the strange ideas that that word can trigger. Uh, I, I, I think that's quite wise of the translators. When I think of the word metamorphosis, I always think of the comic strip 
series, The Incredible Hulk. Uh, you remember the, the, uh, the TV series in the 80s starring Bill Bixby and uh, Lou Ferrigno. And when Bill Bixby's character got a little agitated, uh, he turned green and he got all these big muscles and his shirt buttons popped off. And, and uh, uh, that was really the, the uh, you know, watching that show as a youngster, I used to, that, that was the part we lived for, is for him to turn green. And, uh, you can see this is not helpful to our passage at all. <laughs> Thinking these kinds of things, so we can see the logic of the translators not wanting to use the word metamorphosis. Uh, they use the, the Latin word transfigure. Uh, well, what does that mean? Uh, well, the text goes on to tell us that Christ's face shone like a sun and his clothes became white as light. Uh, what's going on there? What's going on there is the heavens are opened. Um, the glory of the uh, eternal Son of God is being allowed to shine forth. Uh, uh, the disciples are, are getting a glimpse of the very glory of God. We're told elsewhere, Paul tells us in, in 1 Timothy, that God dwells in unapproachable light. Uh, in uh, the 21st chapter of Revelation, I think it's around verse 23 somewhere, uh, speaking of the new Jerusalem, you know, uh, the Apostle John tells us that there's no need for the sun. Why? Because the glory of God illuminates everything. Uh, there's a story I almost use as our call to worship this morning, a story from Exodus uh, 33 and 34, where Moses asks the Lord, he says, Lord, show me your glory. And the Lord is pleased to do just that for Moses. And, uh, but there's some, there's some limitations. Uh, in Exodus 33, Moses or the Lord tells Moses, he says, listen, you, you cannot see my face, for no man can see my face and live. Uh, but in, in chapter 34, uh, uh, God takes Moses and he puts him in a cleft of a rock and he passes before him and he allows Moses to see a glimpse of God as he's passing by. And he gets to see the glory of the Lord in this limited sense. God shows him what is safe for Moses to see. It's very loving. Uh, passage of, of a very intimate moment that Moses has uh, with God. And interestingly enough, as Moses returns to the camp and his uh, fellow Israelites see him, uh, they're frightened by his appearance. If you're familiar with the story, you know why. It's because his face is, is radiant. Uh, his face is reflecting the glory of God. And that glory actually uh, frightens Israel to the degree that Moses now has to put a veil over his face. Uh, he would pull the veil off when he was uh, with God in his presence. He would put the veil back on uh, as he left the presence of God uh, because he was reflecting the glory of the Lord. And it is this very glory uh, that the disciples uh, are permitted to see. Only in this case, Jesus is not reflecting the glory of God. It's important that we understand that. The glory of God is emanating from Him. Uh, he is the source of it. Uh, he is radiant. He is white. And in verse 3, we're told that there appeared to Him Moses and Elijah. And we might ask ourselves, what's the significance of this? What's Moses and Elijah doing here? Uh, as, you, as you read the Old Testament, as you read the Bible really as a whole, Moses is often emblematic for the law of God, isn't he? Stands for the law. 
And Elijah is often emblematic for the prophets. And this has been a theme in Matthew, uh, the law and the prophets. Uh, you remember way back in chapter 7, Jesus says, listen, I want you guys to get the impression that I've come to do away with the law. I've not come to do away with the law. I've come to what? I've come to fulfill the law. That theme has been running through the entire gospel. It's one of the, remember when I introduced this, this is one of the themes that will run through the gospel. And secondly, how often in Matthew's gospel does Matthew stop and say, listen, this particular event that I've just recorded for you, this event has taken place to fulfill what was written, to fulfill what has been, what has been said. In other words, to fulfill prophecy, Old Testament prophecy. Elijah is emblematic of that prophecy. So here's Jesus, transfigured in his glory. We're allowed to see the glory of the second person of the Trinity here. And there Moses and Elijah is appearing. There's Jesus, there's the law, there's the prophets. And Peter, you know, Peter, uh, he's one of those guys that can't just sit there, you know, and just take this stuff in. He has to say something, doesn't he? And we really see his personality in this particular passage, and he gets excited. Uh, he says to Jesus, Lord, it's good that we're here. <laughs> this is great. <laughs> he says, if you wish, I'll make three tents for you, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Uh, some scholars uh, will look at this, and they see in this that, that in Peter's mind at this juncture, he sees Jesus on an even playing field with Moses and Elijah. He sees it. Uh, Moses, Elijah, and Jesus of equal glory, if you will. Uh, I, I, I don't know if we can really conclude that much from this, from this sentence, if that's really what Peter says. I think, we could, I think we could look at it another way. We could say this, Peter doesn't want this moment to end. Uh, let's put up some tents, man. Let's just, let's, because when we have these kind of moments, we don't want them to end. I don't want this thing to end. Let's build a tent. Let's hang out here. I, I'm not sure. Peter seems to be just babbling. I'm not sure he's making any sense of this, actually. He's babbling. But I think at the very least we could say Peter wants this to continue on. Uh, that is until uh, what takes place next. Uh, this uh, a bright cloud, verse 5, while Peter is still speaking, this bright cloud overshadows them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved son. Now, if you're familiar with the Old Testament, uh, especially the, uh, the uh, wilderness wanderings, if you will, after uh, God leads Israel out of Egypt. Uh, while Israel is in the desert, uh, God accompanies them. He leads them by way of a cloud in the day and by a pillar of fire at night. We call this the Shekinah glory, if you will. Uh, that's what's going to immediately come to mind. Uh, here they are on top of the mountain. This is often how God met with Moses on top of the mountain, and the cloud would cover the top of the mountain. Uh, it was actually a very frightening experience. And, and we see that the disciples, they fall on their face in verse 6. They're terrified. And out of, the, out of the cloud, this is the voice of the Father. He points to Jesus. He said, this is my beloved Son. And we can see that the Father is reinforcing the confession that we studied a couple of weeks ago. What is, the, what, what is God, what is the Father revealed uh, to uh, to Peter and the disciples, he's revealed that Jesus uh, is indeed the divine Son of God, uh, that He is uh, the Christ, 
And here the Father is speaking out of heaven. He's reinforcing this. You're correct. Uh, he is my beloved son. I am well pleased with him. And then he gives this command. Listen to him. Listen to him. So we see all of these verses are pointing to the glory of God's son. You see that? That's, I think, the, uh, very easy to see. The glory of God's son. In verse 5, we begin to see that the second part, uh, the glory of God's word. Uh, the command that the Father gives is to listen to Jesus. Listen to what? Listen to his words. Uh, we see the glory of the Son of God in this text. We see the glory of Christ's words, which are one and the same as God's words. We see the glory of God's word here. Um, the disciples hear this. They fall on their face. Uh, Jesus comes and touches them. He tells them to uh, rise and have no fear. Uh, they're taking all of this in. Years later, when, when Peter is reflecting on this, uh, he writes in the passage that we read as our, our call to worship this morning, uh, in 1 Peter uh, chapter uh, 1, Second um, 2 Peter chapter 1, that is, verse 16. You know, Peter, Peter writes reflecting on this. Uh, he says, you know, we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But he goes on to say we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. He says, for when, we, when he received honor and glory from God the Father and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. What's Peter referring to here? He's very obviously referring to the story that we're studying in Matthew, isn't he? This experience on the mountain. And uh, he says, verse 18, We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. But then Peter goes on to say something that is really, really, really important, especially for the particular hour that we, that we live in. In verse 19 he says, We have something more sure. We have something more sure. What's Peter saying here? He's reflecting back on this experience that he has with James and John and Jesus on this mountain where they, they experience and they see for themselves the very glory of God. They hear the very voice of the Father out of the heavens. This wonderful experience. And Peter says, listen, that was a great experience that we had here. But I want you to understand we've got something that's even more certain, more sure even than that experience. What is it? It's the Word of God. It's the Word of God. The prophetic Word. What's Peter saying? He's saying that this book that we're all holding in our hands is to be valued and prized above any experience that we could have. And if we think about where we are, you know, in our particular culture, we, we usually have that backwards, don't we? Everybody wants this experience. And don't misunderstand me. I'm not, I'm not speaking against experiences. You know, I pray every Sunday morning that we're going to experience the presence of God. The three of us get in the back and we pray. And I'm up in the morning praying that we would all experience the presence of God. I want that experience. I want all of us to have that experience. We want to have that experience. But let's keep that experience in its proper place. Let's keep that experience in a proper place. You know, I can't promise you that you will have this experience as you can, some, as some ministries do. They call their worship services 
experiences, that we're offering uh, worship experiences, or we're offering, you know, God can't be peddled that way. Uh, we don't know when God is going to bless us and when He isn't going to bless us. What we do know is He's most likely to bless us when we're gathered together. We come here, we're expecting to be blessed by God, but God's going to do what God's going to do. Uh, I come here expecting to be blessed with an experience, and most often uh, am, but this isn't something that I can do. This isn't something that any of us can do. It's the Holy Spirit that must do this. But as we think about these experiences, let's think about them in their proper place. We need to be looking at the Word of God in terms of it being more sure, more certain. Let me say just a little bit more about this. Suppose we have this mountaintop experience. How do we evaluate that mountaintop experience? How do we know that that experience is even of God? That it is not simply being manufactured by our minds and our imaginations, or that even worse, it's of the evil one. There's a lot of books that have been written very recently about near-death experiences or folks whose hearts have even stopped and uh, their biorhythms have ceased for a period of time uh, where they have claimed to be in the presence of God, where they've seen God, and then they've been revived and they've come back and they've written these books about this. And uh, let's be very cautious here. Uh, I'm not saying that these people have not had these experiences. That would be to sit here and say that, uh, that these people are lying. I, I don't want to do that. I don't want to say that any of these folks that have written these books uh, are, are lying. I, but I just want to I want to make a word of caution here. What, what concerns me about much of this literature is that unrepentant sinners, at least folks that seem to be unrepentant in some cases, uh, they, they have this experience where they're with God, in the presence of God. Everything is wonderful. And they come back and they're still not advocating faith and repentance in Christ. Now, uh, sorry, uh, we need to evaluate that experience. Is that experience really of God? Is that experience... Uh, uh, even worse yet, of the evil one. Uh, maybe the experience is of God, but can the evil one use it in the wrong way? Yes. The disciples are having a mountaintop experience. What happens to them as they have this mountaintop experience? Initially, they start out very excited, don't they? Oh, it's good that we're here, Lord. I'm going to build a tent for you, and I'm going to build a tent for Moses, I'm going to build a tent for Elijah, and then... And then the glory cloud comes in, and then what happens? Uh-oh. They're face down. And this is what seems to be missing from all of these accounts of these, of these experiences with God. There's no face-down business. I haven't read all of the accounts. Maybe some of them have a face-down experience, but I would be looking for one. If you told me you've been in the presence of God, I'm looking for a face-down experience because this is what happens in the, in, in the, in the Bible when these men have uh, experiences with the presence of God. Even John, the, the, the apostle John, the one whom Jesus entrusts with his mother as he's dying on the cross, he trusts with Mary. When he later sees Jesus, uh, on the island of Patmos, and he sees Jesus, what does he do? He falls down as though dead. Why? He hasn't been glorified yet. He hasn't been glorified yet. John is a holy man. Uh, way further along in his... I, I, I'm going to 
hazard a guess that he's way further along in the sanctification process than the authors of some of these books and than any of us. Yet he falls down. He's the disciple the scriptures tell us that Jesus loved. He's the one that's portrayed in those, in those pictures of Jesus at the Last Supper. He's, the, he's, the, he's the, the disciple who has his head leaning against the, the bosom of Jesus. He's very close to Jesus. Yet when he sees Jesus on the island of Patmos, he falls down. The beautiful thing is that Jesus touches him and says, listen, don't, don't be afraid. You have no reason to be afraid. Look at the nail. The nail pierced hands. You know, it's because of what I've done for you. I've went in your place. Uh, you, you have no uh, reason to be afraid. That's what Jesus does here for the disciples. You have no reason to be afraid. What are we seeing here? We're seeing the glory of God's Son, aren't we? We're seeing the glory of God's Word. There's one more thing that I want us to see. It won't take so long, as long to develop, but it's the glory of God's, of God's plans. It's the glory of God's plans. Uh, we're told that when Moses and Elijah appear with Jesus, that Moses and Elijah are talking with Jesus. What are they saying? Uh, Matthew doesn't tell us, but Luke, in his account of this, he tells us what they're talking about. What are they talking about? They're talking about Jesus' departure in Jerusalem. And if we think about last week, what is Jesus beginning to teach his disciples now? After they've made this great confession, in verse 21, from that time Jesus began to show his disciples that he would. He must go to Jerusalem. He must suffer. He must die. On the third day be raised from the dead. This is what Moses and Elijah are discussing with Jesus. What is this? It's the plan of God. It's the ancient plan of God. We see God's plans. We go about our business. Uh, we get up, we go to work, uh, we hazard the cold weather, we, uh, we, we go through all of our problems and all of our life experiences, and a lot of times we don't even think about God's plans. But God has plans, and these plans are being carried out. Uh, they're for sure. Uh, they're actually quite wonderful. Uh, Jesus speaks about these plans uh, later as, as this experience is over and as Jesus and his disciples are coming down the mountain. Uh, Jesus tells them not to tell anybody about these things. Not yet, not until I've been raised from the dead. And in verse 10, the disciples ask him, they say, well, why do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? Now, we know the answer to that, don't we? I mean, the, the last book, at least in our English Bibles, the last book of the, of the uh, Old Testament is Malachi. And in the last chapter of Malachi, verses 5 and 6, God promises that when the day of the Lord comes, He will send Elijah. Elijah will restore all things. Elijah will uh, uh, turn the hearts of the fathers uh, to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers. That's why the scribes are saying Elijah must come first, because the Bible says that Elijah must come first. This prophecy. And Jesus says, yes, well, this is why they, they say he must come first. He does come first. In verse 12, he says, I tell you, Elijah has already come. This is part of the plan of God. This is a plan, this is a plan that goes all the way back into eternity. It's a plan that God revealed to them about 400 years prior to this event. But it's the plan of God. Elijah has already come. You think of the disciples saying, Elijah came. Well, I don't remember seeing Elijah. No, he already come. 
And I'll tell you what, they didn't recognize him and they did to him what they pleased. And then the disciples said, whoa, man, you're talking about John the Baptist. John the Baptist was Elijah? Not literally. John the Baptist comes in the power and the spirit of Elijah. It's not literally Elijah. We see the glory of the Son of God here, don't we? We see the glory of His Word. Greater than any experience that we could have is God's Word. It's more sure. It's more certain. It's the only way we can evaluate our experiences. And then we see the glory of God's plans. Today as we go, as we venture out into the, the cold and as we, uh, as we go about our business, let's give some thought to the plans of God. What are the plans of God? The plans of God are to build His church. And if you're in Christ Jesus this morning, if, you, if you're believing in Christ Jesus, you're trusting in Christ Jesus, God has brought you into His plan. His plan is to restore all things, and He's including you in it. And His plan is, once the last person is brought in, His plan is to return. He will return when that happens. And when He returns, He will do away with evil. He's going to do away with the foul weather. I'm certain of that. And uh, he, He's going to restore everything to the way it's supposed to be, even greater than it's ever been in the new heavens and the new earth. So we have the glory of God's Son, the glory of God's Word, and the glory of God's plans. Heavenly Father, we thank You, Lord. We praise You that You are a great and awesome God. We thank You and praise You that You have sent Your Son, Jesus, to save us. We thank You, O Lord, that You've given uh, your word to us that we can evaluate all things with your word and we thank you for your wonderful plans which you've been pleased to include us in and we thank you for our salvation and for the future that you, you, your plans include coming back and restoring uh, the new heavens and the new earth uh, doing away with evil Lord we look forward to that day and we pray these things in Jesus name and everyone said Amen, amen.